Okay, I'm really excited about this podcast because it's a little bit of a different take today. I'm talking with Dr. Mario Garcia, who is a legend, an icon, Chicano studies historian. He's just a historian. He knows so much about so many topics. And we're going to talk about journalist Ruben Salazar, who's really an icon, pioneer in journalism circles. He was somebody who was writing about what was going on in the Mexican-American Latino community long before anyone else was. And he worked for Los Angeles Times. He also worked for KMEX. And he's really somebody who had a very distinguished career. Not a lot of people know about him um, outside of journalism, but he's had a major impact in terms of the types of stories that he has covered. He died in controversial fashion at the hands of the uh, L.A. Sheriff's Department. And uh, we talk a little bit about uh, the day that he died while he was covering the Chicano moratorium, which was a protest of the number of Mexican-Americans and Chicanos who were dying in the Vietnam War. So this is a really cool conversation with Dr. Garcia. He takes some time to sort of break it all down. And we also talk about some contemporary issues as well. We talk about uh, what's going on, you know, currently in the state of uh, the country in 2021. So we get all kinds of great views on racial justice, social justice, a lot of history. And uh, this is a really cool, cool podcast. Um, thank you for taking the time to appreciate and watch this podcast. I'm really hoping that you take a minute to like and subscribe. Check it out. Get familiar with the channel because uh, this is my own deal. It's my own endeavor. It's something that I'm trying to do that's no one else is really doing. It's a little bit different. So I interview a whole bunch of people from all kinds of walks of life. Uh, it's very diverse. Um, so I'm glad that you take the time to to watch and, and, and listen. These podcasts are also available on all podcast platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts. So, so thanks a lot. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. Take care. Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be here with Dr. Mario Garcia, one of the founders of the Chicano Studies Department at UCSB, and um, a real, real uh, icon and legend and super knowledgeable of uh, Chicano studies and uh, a variety of issues facing Chicanos in the Latinx community. And uh, it's my pleasure to be here with you today, Mario. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you so much, uh, Josh, for inviting me to your program. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I um, obviously, you know, I, I've known of you for a long time, and I interviewed you a couple times at the very beginning of my career about 20, 25 years ago. So I've been aware of you and, you know, knowledgeable of your works, but I wanted to talk to you about a few things today. Um, I wanted to lead off with some discussion about journalist Ruben Salazar, who um, is, is an icon in uh, journalism circles, particularly among um, Latino uh, uh, journalists and people who are appreciating the sort of history of Latino journalists. And his birthday was in March. Obviously, he was uh, shot and, uh, you know, he, he was killed under mysterious circumstances at the Silver Dollar Club um, while, you know, he was working, while he was covering a uh, Chicano moratorium march on uh, related to the Vietnam War. And so I wanted to sort of um, talk, you know, I wanted to ask you, because you're featured in so many of these these projects and these videos about his career. And I, I don't know that a lot of people really understand sort of the role and the impact he had, both in terms of his work, as well as sort of inspiring future journalists. Can, can you talk a little bit about Mr. Salazar and, and, and why he was so impactful as a, as a journalist? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I mean, I I, like so many others, at some point became fascinated with Ruben Salazar. And, and uh, again, it, it amazes me how every generation seems to rediscover Ruben Salazar and become interested and fascinated with his uh, story. I mean, I first was aware of Ruben Salazar uh, as, uh, as a journalist himself uh, with the Los Angeles Times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wasn't in LA at the time when he was writing in the 1960s. So I just knew that he had written for the LA Times. And of course, those of us uh, who, who come out of the Chicano movement were aware that he was the, that journalist who happened to have been killed on August 29th, 1970. 
in East Los Angeles, which uh, was characterized by the largest uh, demonstration during the period of the Chicano movement of the late 60s and into the 70s. And this was the demonstration against the war in Vietnam. And it's estimated that, well, the number usually mentioned is 20,000. It could have been more people, mostly Chicanos, who protested against the war in Vietnam on that uh, hot, sunny, smoggy day in East Los Angeles. And they were protesting a war that they felt was unjust, uh, was a war that was uh, injuring the Chicano people, uh, number one, because a lot of Chicanos were being drafted into the war. And uh, a study that was done by Professor Ralph Guzman at Cal State LA in the late 60s showed the disproportionate number of Chicanos who were being drafted. So that, for example, well, he pointed out, well, Chicanos represented 10% of the five southwestern states, which at that time was where the majority of Chicanos lived, they represented 10% of that population, yet they represented 20% of the casualties from southwestern states. So this was a disproportionate uh, drafting of Chicanos uh, into, into the military and many of them being uh, into the war in Vietnam, many of them not coming back we don't know the, the number of Chicanos that were killed. You know, about 60,000 Americans' lives were lost in the war in Vietnam. And the figures seen, although they're not official, that it may be between five to 6,000 Chicanos were killed, or Latinos as well, killed in the war in Vietnam. Uh, and of course, that doesn't speak to the number who came back injured, physically, and emotionally. Uh, so the Chicano movement took on the war in Vietnam as an issue that was central to the Chicano movement. They also pointed out that to pay for the war, the government, the administration with, with, with Johnson administration and then the Nixon administration, they were siphoning off funds from anti-poverty programs, from educational programs, from welfare programs to fund the war in Vietnam. Wow. President Johnson had said uh, that he, uh, we could, that we could have what he called guns and butter, meaning we could have the war in Vietnam and we could still have this great society uh, and anti-poverty programs. In the end, he couldn't have both. He unfortunately chose the war over the uh, anti-poverty program. But Chicanos were demonstrating the war because it had become a Chicano issue. Ruben Salazar uh, was covering the, the, that demonstration. His position on, in all 1970 was twofold. He had written for the Los Angeles Times from the early 60s all the way through, uh, through 1969 uh, as a reporter. Uh, and, uh, but in the early part of 1970, he decided to accept an offer from KBX, Channel 34, at that time the only Spanish language television station in LA, to become the news director. He, in a way, didn't want to leave the LA Times, although he had felt that he had never been fully appreciated by the LA Times. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he, and the Times worked out an arrangement where he would write a column, a weekly column for the LA Times. He would no longer be on the staff, but he would write a weekly column. And those columns allowed Ruben the opportunity to really uh, get into his own struggle with his identity as a Chico, as a Mexican American. And the wonderful columns. But his main job was. KMEX, and in the KMEX, he was exposing a lot of police abuse in the barrio. So these times, for example, yeah. there was no love loss between the police, which would be the LAPD and the county sheriffs and Ruben Salazar. And I say that deliberately because after his death, he was killed after the protest. He and his TV crew had gone, retired back down on Whittier Boulevard, which had been the main route of the march. And, and they went into the Silver Dollar Cafe, a bar, 
to, I guess, get a beer and just kind of get away from all the, the tear gas that was all over the place. Shortly thereafter, a squad car uh, of the county sheriff showed up and without warning, shot one, maybe two tear gas projectiles into the bar. The autopsy later showed that one of the tear gas projectiles had struck Ruben in the head and instantly killed him. And his body was later found and identified as Ruben Salazar. So he became an instant martyr for the Chicano movement. And that's why, you know, he's still recognized and celebrated. And we can talk further about that because in my own opinion, Ruben Salazar would have been the last person to, that would want to be seen as a martyr for the Chicano movement. I mean, he, in the end, comes to support the Chicano movement. But as a journalist, and even with KMEX, he felt that he had, there was a professional line that he could not cross. He could not be a professional slash, I should say, a journalist slash activist at the same time. Yeah. He felt that he always had to remain somewhat distant, even though he was supportive of the movement, but still re retain his professional uh, credentials. So uh, in a way, he, he's one of those situations where you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, but he does, he does, he is killed. He's one of three people that are killed uh, in relationship to the demonstration. And so he, 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 he receives almost, you know, instant uh, uh, attention. People begin to recognize who he was and so forth. And in my opinion, that's important because there's no question that at the time of his death, he was uh, the uh, most noted uh, Latino uh, journalist in the country. There's no question about it. There were almost no Latino journalists, as far as I know, who were writing for mainstream major newspapers at that time, like the Los Angeles Times. So that Ruben was a pioneer. Yeah. He was a pioneer and he had been working on it for several, over the times for, for a number of years. So. Anyway, so I was aware of, of learning about Ruben as a journalist that got interested in me. And then much later on, so I began to realize that we were coming up in 1995 on the 25th anniversary of his death. I had decided a few years earlier that it would be important to do a book, an edited volume of Ruben Salazar's, the best of his journalism. Mm -hmm. And so that I was able to obtain the copies of his different uh, uh, reporting uh, pieces from the Times and also the columns that he later wrote. And I selected what I thought were the best and published in an edited volume that came out in 1995. And I don't, I'll hold the book up and see if you know, yeah, I, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. can you Can you see it, Joshua? Yeah, I, I mean, so, and so I, I have that book, yeah. Okay, so it's entitled Ruben Salazar, Border Correspondent, Selected Writings, 1955-1970, which I edited, published by the University of California Press. This, this image of Ruben Salazar was done by the uh, very prominent artist, Rupert Garcia, no relationship to me, who did this image of Ruben Salazar for an art exhibit in San Francisco a few months after Ruben was killed. And, well, I, I was aware of the image. When I was doing the book, I said, this is the image that's gotta be the cover for the book. It's a wonderful image. So, uh, and this is the first real uh, book or uh, attempt to try to uh, somehow bring together Ruben Salazar's, especially his journalism career. Very little had been published on Ruben Salazar in the 25 years after his death. So my book was the first one to really try to you know, begin to bring some kind of uh, more attention to who he was and his work. And uh, so that's, uh, that's the reason I, I, I did the book and that's how, how I came across Ruben Salazar. And, um, but he, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the book that first and foremost, he, he needs to be recognized again as the, uh, uh, major journalist that he was and how the professional that he was and his great reporting. Uh, he, he, he 
He had been a reporter for a few years prior to being in the LA Times. And in my research for this book, I also discovered that Ruben Salazar, like me, came from the El Paso area. I was born in El Paso along the border. Ruben was actually born in Ciudad Juarez, the city across from El Paso in the 1930s. But when he was still a baby, the family uh, crossed the border and settled in El Paso. And Ruben later becomes a naturalized US citizen. But, he, but his whole life is really in El Paso and along the border. And um, after high school and after he was in the military, he came back and got his uh, journalism degree at uh, what was then called the uh, Texas Western College, which is now referred to as University of Texas El Paso, or UTEP, which is also my alma mater. And after he got his degree, he then was hired uh, at one of the local El Paso newspapers, the El Paso Herald Post, which is Scripps Howard newspaper, and was a more liberal paper of the two newspapers in El Paso, the other being the El Paso Times, a more conservative paper. So Ruben started his career as a journalist with the El Paso Herald. And he did some basic reporting, but he did some incredible reporting as well, which I discovered and I, and I include some of those stories in this book in which he did some investigative reporting. Uh, and for example, he, the conditions at the city jail was, were awful. Uh, notorious uh, situation. So Ruben, to investigate the conditions in the local city jail, <laughs> disguised himself as, uh, but he, he, was, he was a drunk, yeah. he was a drunk. <laughs> so he's arrested and put in the jail. <laughs> and so he does his investigative reporting within the jail, disguised as someone who was inebriated. Yeah, right. And then he writes about his experience in the awful conditions as, as kind of an insider story. Mm -hmm. So this, this becomes major news. It's front page news in the El Paso Herald Post. We're talking here in the mid-1950s. And, uh, and he also did investigative reporting about the drug uh, conditions along the border and, and the drug uh, uh, trade in South El Paso, which was in Mexican Radio, and how you had some some uh, you know, notorious kind of uh, drug rings that were operating there. So he did investigative reporting there by disguising himself as someone who wanted to purchase some of these drugs. Mm -hmm. And so he, some, he gets in there, there and, and he, so he, that's part of his investigation. So he had developed quite a, a good reputation as an investigative journalist at the El Paso Herald Post. But I think Ruben always felt that he wanted to uh, go beyond his local community and try to uh, achieve uh, perhaps uh, more prominence in, in other journalistic uh, opportunities. So he came to California following as so many other Mexican-Americans eventually, including myself, eventually came to California. And he first got some uh, uh, journalistic uh, positions in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 50s. And then around uh, 59 or so, uh, he comes down to Los Angeles and gets uh, hired in one of the uh, more minor Los Angeles newspapers. And then, but he, he writes enough so he becomes known to the powers that be at the LA Times who around 1961, the new editor of the Times is Otis Chandler Jr. The Chandler family had owned the Times since the late 19th century, but it's like a new generation now taking over. And Otis Chandler Jr. wants to transfer the LA Times from a well-known paper, but it was, not, it was not a respectful paper. It was among newspapers in the country, the LA Times was looked down upon as a mediocre newspaper. Chandler wanted to make it into a world-class newspaper, both in terms of national coverage and international coverage, and even local coverage. Because, and he knew in terms of local coverage and regional coverage, he already knew enough about the growing importance of the Mexican-American population that he needed someone to cover it. 
That's where Ruben comes in. They hire Ruben initially to cover the Mexican-American community and, and also the region of the Southwest and the US-Mexico border. He writes some very, very wonderful stories, including a five-part award-winning series on East Los Angeles. And so, uh, and so he becomes, you know, uh, well-known in, in the LA Times. Uh, he, and, and, he, and his work is so good that in 1965, he now is transferred to become a foreign correspondent. They send him to cover the US invasion of the Dominican Republic in 65, and he does a good job there. Good enough that they then will send him to Vietnam to be one of, I think, two or three LA Times correspondents in Vietnam as the war escalates in the mid-1960s. And he does a year or so of coverage there. And then uh, and, and does a good enough job that he's, he, he's asked to come back and he's promoted to become the uh, bureau chief in Mexico City, the LA Times bureau chief in Mexico City covering Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And he loved that. He loved that. That was probably the, the best experience that he had to be in the bureau chief because he was his own boss and he selected his own stories and so forth. And his family lived there in Mexico City. They had a chauffeur, they had, you know, they had a nice place to live in and so forth. However, in uh, 1968, in March of 1968, uh, you have in Los Angeles the East LA blowouts or walkouts in the East LA public schools. In the first week of March of 1968, uh, thousands of young Chicano students uh, walk out of their schools and protest against years and years of segregated and inferior education. And uh, this protest called the blowouts shook LA in a way that, because they didn't recognize the grievances that the Mexican American population had. They saw race in black and white. They didn't have any sense of the racism that was affecting Mexican Americans historically. And even in the 1960s where they were still, you know, they were basically seen as pools of cheap labor as they had always been seen as pools of cheap labor, either as US born, but also the immigrants who had been coming in the course of the 20th century. The early 20th century immigrant workers from, from, from Mexico were literally hiring what were called Mexican jobs and they were paid Mexican wages. And the kids had to go to segregated so-called Mexican schools that were inferior schools. And so those Mexican schools were still alive and well in LA in 1968. And so the LA Times is also taken aback. They had not recognized, you know, even though they had hired Ruben to cover the Mexican American community, they knew some of the issues, but the shock of the walkouts really, uh, uh, you know, really amazed them. And also they realized they had no reporter to cover the Mexican-American community after Ruben had left and gone on as a foreign correspondent. And so Otis Chancellor does, at least the way of the story, that Otis Chancellor Jr. personally contacted Ruben Salazar in Mexico City and said, we need you back. We need you back because there's this developing story in the Mexican-American Chicano community. I mean, there is a movement there and we need to have it covered. Ruben didn't really want to come back. He liked being the bureau chief in Mexico City, but he was always a good company man, Josh. And so he agreed to come and he started covering the Chicano movement. So he wrote stories about the Chicano movement and so forth. And then that brings us up to when he goes to KMEX and then of course he's covering the Chicano movement and the protests against the war and unfortunately uh, is killed. Now, some people as I mentioned earlier, because of some of the reporting that he was doing in investigating uh, police abuse in East LA, some people after his death uh, came up with conspiracy theories that maybe the county sheriffs were deliberately uh, after Ruben Salazar that day and were trailing him. And therefore they knew that he was in that cafe, that bar, 
and, and set out to kill him. Now, that's never been proven. No smoking gun has ever been uh, uncovered, but there's still conspiracy theories there. I mean, there, those conspiracy theories continue because there was no thorough investigation that was done about why was Ruben Salazar killed? Why, what happened? What, why were the sheriffs there? And so forth and so on. There was no, no this is pre-Rodney King and even the LA Times wasn't going to take on the LAPD or the county sheriff. You just didn't do that. Yeah. And so there was no real full investigation. So, but for me, the most important thing about Ruben Salazar but was that he was a, a damn good journalist, professional journalist, and a real pioneer. No one else was writing for a mainstream newspaper like the LA Times other than Ruben Salazar. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he opened up the opportunity for other uh, Mexican-American, Latino journalists to follow in his place. And so uh, later other reporters are hired like Frank Palomo uh, and others who are hired. And, um, and that happens of course in, among other newspapers and then eventually on television and radio. And so in the last 50 years, we've seen, and you would know better, a, a multiplication of the number of Latino journalists at, at all levels that we but in the 1960s, there was only one, and that was Ruben Salazar. Yeah. And so we really indebted to him as a pioneer in, in Latino journalism. And so that's kind of my uh, approach to Ruben. Now, you mentioned that back then, race was sort of looked at as black and white and uh, largely Mexican-Americans were considered part of the sort of the working pool, you know, they, they were they were labor groups. Um, how much of ch has that changed in your perspective? Uh, obviously in 2020, we saw Black Lives Matter uh, rise yeah. to the national mainstream because of the George Floyd uh, killing. And uh, we saw lots of attention. Black Lives Matter was, was, um, was known before that. <clears throat> Um, do you still see growth areas for an awareness of <clears throat> racism um, beyond just black and white, and also looking at, um, you know, different, you know, whether it's Asian Americans and you know Mexican Americans? Um, how much have we improved since those days? Well, let me say first of all, racism in America has never been just black and white. Yeah. Obviously, the racism toward people of of African-American descent has been uh, horrendous beginning with slavery and Jim Crow and the continuation of racism as we see it even today. And, and as you said, uh, exemplified by this past summer, the Black Lives Matter movement. But racism has also been endemic in many other communities of color, including uh, among Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, Latinos, and of course, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, Native Americans, of course, beginning with their, the genocide against Native Americans. Hmm. So racism has touched all peoples of color. It's been unfortunate that in the writing of American history, uh, the focus has been too much heavily on the black-white relationships. Uh, and um, it's only been over the last several decades, historians like myself and others have brought it attention to the fact that Mexican-Americans, Chicanos have also been uh, affected historically speaking uh, with um, racism, not just as an attitude, but we used to, in the 60s, uh, we, used to discuss, we used to discuss institutionalized racism. That was the term. Now we're talking about systemic racism, but they're the same thing. Yeah. How racism is not just an attitude. Racism is, is implanted literally in the system and in the institutions to maintain the oppression of people of color. Why? Well, because they basically, it's either because we wanted lands from them like the Native Americans, or in most other cases, we wanted their labor and mostly their cheap labor. And so uh, 
that's how you build it into the system. That's why when I referred to earlier, when Mexican immigrants began to come across the border by the thousands in the early 20th century, and they were, they were drawn in by the expansion of the railroads, the development of mining like in Arizona, agribusiness throughout the Southwest and especially in California. Who was gonna do the labor for that? Uh, and, and they were not, they, they had tried Asian Americans like the Chinese, but then in California, you had white people saying, well, no, I mean, these people are so different, they're gonna just completely uh, affect our, our culture and our race. And so the yellow peril syndrome developed. So that didn't happen. A lot of European immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe were coming in in the early 20th century, but there were so many industrial jobs in the East that many of them you know, didn't migrate to the Southwest in California. So where were they going to, these industries going to find the cheap labor they wanted? Well, they, they eventually turned to Mexico, which probably should have been the first place that they should have turned to. And so they helped to encourage thousands of Mexican immigrants to come across the border and they were institutionalized into what were literally called Mexican jobs, which were the dirtiest, cheapest labor. Not so much constructing railroads, but maintaining the railroads, working in, 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 the, in, in the mines of Southern Arizona, working in the fields from Texas to California. Uh, these were the Mexican jobs. And then they were complemented by what were literally called Mexican wages, the lowest wages paid throughout the Southwest and so on forced to live in Mexican barrios that were, they had no paved streets, they had no sanitation, they had to build their own homes if they were living in the cities or their tents and out in the countryside. And then, as I tell my students, to add insult to injury, their children, many of them now US born, had to go to these infamous, meaning bad, Mexican schools that limited education, uh, heavy focus on teaching the kids to learn with their hands, because after all, that's what they were gonna be doing in the future. The, the girls were taught how to cook and sew, and the boys were taught how to work with tools. And, uh, and uh, yes, they, 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 they taught them English in part in order so that they would be able to follow rules and follow the boss's orders and uh, enough American history to socialize them and to make them feel grateful for what little they had. But, but there, this was not really education that was meant to provide these kids with uh, a level of mobility that would take them out of coming from poor working class families. Uh, the worst thing in these Mexican schools, as I also tell my students, is that too many teachers in these schools had low expectations of the students. So they would walk into a classroom and they'd look at it, all these Mexican kids. They did not believe that these kids could be taught at a very high level because it was believed that the Mexicans were not only racially inferior physically, they were racially inferior mentally. And so you could only teach them up to a certain level. And that was the lowest common denominator. So, so there was a low expectation by the teacher. So, Systemic institutionalized racism has affected people of Mexican and Latino descent for, for decades. And, um, and so, uh, but in terms of, uh, in terms of, of the reaction to that, what's important to note as I've attempted to do is in a lot of my work is to show that Mexican Americans who take that group as an example, have never just simply accepted institutionalized racism or systemic racism. They have fought against it. And so you've had a long history of Mexican-American civil rights struggles. And some of my book, I've traced this back to the 1930s when you began to have organizations like LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens, the oldest Mexican-American civil rights organization. For after World War II, a lot of the veterans came back and you can believe it, they went to fight against, for democracy and against the racism of Germany and Japan. And they come back to their communities and they're faced with their racism against them and the, the continuation of systemic racism. And so 
they begin to fight back. And you have a group like the American GI Forum that's organized, takes on a lot of these segregation in schools, segregation in jobs, discrimination in wages and housing and public facilities like theaters, swimming pools, parks, all of these things have excluded Mexican-Americans. I tell my students, for example, you, in, you had segregation like in the in beaches here in California, in Carpinteria, obviously close to us here in Santa Barbara, that main beach in Carpinteria up until the 1950s was segregated. It, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans were not allowed to go to, to, to go to that main beach. They had to go further south, north, but not that, you know, at the end of Linden Avenue, that main beach there, that was only for white people. Wow. So, uh, and so there's been a long history of Mexican-Americans and other Latino groups fighting for civil rights. And I think we've now, we've now uh, written enough of that history but I also maintain that we can no longer talk about civil rights, again, also just as a black-white issue. The discussion of American civil rights history now has to include other groups like Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, who had a long history of civil rights activities. And the Chicano movement was very much a part of that. The Chicano movement that Ruben Talasado was covering was largest and most expansive uh, civil rights and empowerment movement by people of Mexican descent in the United States. I mean, it opened up tremendous opportunities that, 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 that people didn't have before. Now, there's still many, uh, still a lot of systematic racism that affect Latinos and Mexican-Americans. But what the Chicano movement showed that only by fighting back and struggling to be, you begin to push back against that system, force it to open up. And one of the great successes of the Chicano movement that Ruben covered was, it, was the opportunity for kids to go to college. Very few had been attending college. Ruben was, was uh, you know, singular in the sense that he did go to college in the 1950s, but many, many others did not. And we look now, and we see now thousands and not millions of Latino kids and Mexican-American students who are attending colleges and universities. And as you know, here at UCSB, we, we now are a so-called Hispanic service institution, which means that over 26% of our undergraduates, and it's much higher than that now, probably closer to 30, uh, of our undergraduates are, are Latino students. And that's happening all over the country. That's probably one of the greatest achievements of the Chicano movement, which is what I, I tell my students. There are no, there's no free lunch. The, the elite, the people who control the system, they don't all, all, all of a sudden decide, well, you know, maybe uh, Chicanos should begin to go to higher education here in the 1960s. No, that was a result of the Chicano movement pushing, pushing, struggling, protesting, picketing, and so forth, taking over buildings and so forth. That forced the system to change. And that's the only way that the system will even change now. And I think Ruben Salazar was coming to, to be aware of that. That's why in his columns, you could see that he was sympathetic to what the movement was doing. He knew that he could not be an activist because of his professional position, but he certainly supported it. And uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, uh, Josh, a lot more attention has to be paid how racism has also affected other groups like Latinos, but also how Latinos, Chicanos have fought back against that. We have had our own uh, Black Lives Matter moments, a lot of those moments. Yeah. And it's just that they haven't been as much. And, and this is, you know, getting to the discussion of the media so that the media doesn't pay as much attention to the racism against groups like Latinos, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Or it doesn't pay enough attention to the, the movements and the protests by Latinos and Chicanos and Mexican-Americans against that kind of racialized system. It's, you know, you know, the, the killing of, of black people that we saw since the summer, George Floyd and others, I mean, it's hor horrific. But on any given day in places like LA, the cops shoot Chicano kids and they, they shoot other Latinos and these, they, it never rises to the, to the, to the George Floyd level. So uh, I think the media has to be do a, a lot better job. And I say this, even having said earlier that we have more Latinos in the media. But 
but it's not enough to have Latinos in the media. Uh, they have to be what Sal Castro, whose story I wrote also, and who was the key teacher who motivated the students in the walkouts in 68. And one of the demands of the students was that, we, that they wanted more Mexican-American teachers and Mexican-American administrators. And looking at the long range, uh, long legacy of the blowouts and the walkouts, what do we see? We see a lot of Latino teachers and administrators today, some even on school boards. But not all of them are what Sal Castro called change makers, change makers. He said, we want, we, we need change makers. People are gonna go in and not just accept the status quo in order to get promoted and so forth, but that are gonna shake up the system. And so to make changes and, um, and so uh, we, need, we need perhaps more of our own Latino representatives in the media to shake things up and say, hey, you know, we've got to cover, you know, that killing uh, of that Chicano kid in East because this is by the cops, this is a major story or, or covering uh, protest or or orga, orga, the organization of Latinos to fight back against racism, give that more coverage. So we also have a lot of work to do, you know, uh, and uh, and hopefully that will happen. Yeah, uh, you know, being a journalist, uh, even with all the strides that we've made, you know, it's it's always rare to have more than in the newsrooms I've worked at in San Diego and Santa Barbara and San Jose. Um, and other places, it's, you know, you have a few, um, you know, Mexican-American journalists, Latinos, you know, it's rarer to have African-American journalists and Asian journalists. So even with our strides, you know, there's still uh, yeah. a, a gap between the, like, those in power and those who are on the ground doing the reporting and, uh, you know, covering, um, you know, you talk about uh, Mexican-American change makers. I'd say in my 25 years, too often they say they're going to make change in a campaign, right. and then they get elected, and they become just like everyone else before them. And so that's the yeah. thing with politics, you know. Well, I'd say, I was going to say that I, I would apply to the same criticism that I just made uh, that would apply to to um, Latino uh, politicians. Yeah. Although I wouldn't, I mean. Some are very good, like our own Salud Carvajal here, our, our congressman in, in Washington is very good. Salud, you know, uh, back Salud was one of my students uh, in one of my Chicano studies classes. So I claim him as one of my <laughs> And uh, Salud uh, knows where, where, uh, where uh, you know, his heart needs to be. And he's always struggling to make sure that uh, things are improved for the for the entire community, but especially also for the Latino community, which has had less representation. And, um, but I wanted to, uh, if I may just plug my most recent book, because it fits into the discussion. Yeah, yeah, this is a please. book that just came out. It's a co-edited volume called Rewriting the Chicano Movement. Yeah. And here is a, a number of essays that deals with the Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s and the struggles by Chicanos, Mexican-Americans against, again, systemic racism in, in education, in politics, uh, in the media, in, in art. And so it's a wide ranging number of, essays are wide ranging in terms of the issues and so forth. And by rewriting the Chicano movement, we simply mean, uh, not that the Chicano movement, we're suggesting the Chicano movement is anything less. All of these essays and the book itself First and foremost, note that the Chicano movement was a seminal, a, a major moment in the history of Mexicans in the United States. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, it uh, was the largest movement, social movement of Mexican Americans in terms of dealing with systemic racism. And through its so-called direct action, you know, in the streets and so forth, it forced the system to respond. And that's why we began to have more kids in schools and to have more political representation, more representation in the media and the arts and business and so forth and so on. Uh, the book begins with that understanding of the importance of the movement, but rewriting simply means that, uh, that 50 years more or less after some of the key uh, 
periods of the movement, uh, we are expanding our understanding of the movement. You know, for example, looking at more uh, the role that women played in the movement, more the, the geographic diversity of the movement. So yeah, LA was a central point, Texas was a central point, but the movement was everywhere. It was up in the Pacific Northwest, it was in the Midwest. Uh, it was uh, not just in the bigger cities like LA, it was in Fresno, it was in the Valley, in the, in the Central Valley. It was in the lower Valley of Texas. Uh, and so, so by rewriting, we mean that Historians today, especially younger historians who are rediscovering the movement, are bringing a lot of new themes, new subjects. Uh, so we are expanding our understanding of the Chicano movement. That's what we mean by rewriting. But um, I, I note in the book, uh, and I've been asked in other interviews, what, what do you hope that people will take from that book? And I said, well, I want them to know about the book. I want them to read about the book. Then I want them to reflect especially if they're of Chicano Latino background, but of any background, I'll say, okay, well, uh, what am I now gonna do to carry on the legacy of the movement? And what was that legacy? That legacy was uh, of struggling against racism, discrimination, inequality, uh, struggling for a greater democratization of this country and so forth. Uh, and so uh, all of us uh, need to say, okay, how can we continue this struggle? Uh, and especially uh, after just having come through the nightmare of these last four years of Trump, uh, where uh, there were a lot of setbacks to uh, civil rights, to uh, our democratic institutions, how are we now going to carry out a legacy like the Chicago movement or the Black Lives Matter movement or the earlier Black Civil Rights movement? How are we going to carry on that legacy? to ensure that this doesn't happen again and how we continue to struggle for a complete and full democratization of this country so that people have all their equal and basic rights and that we uh, make major uh, advances to leveling the system so that we don't have these gross inequalities in incomes uh, that we face today. And, and that gross inequality we know is also uh, related to, uh, to issues of race. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the legacy that I think the Chicano movement gives to us, but it's only good if people say, yeah, well, now I'm going to pick it up. I'm gonna pick up the mantle now and, and carry it forward now. Yeah, you know, very well put. What, what do you think of this humanitarian crisis that we're seeing with uh, what's happening with all these kids Yes. Coming in, you know, uh, kids alone without their parents at the border. Uh, we're reading these national reports that are saying that, you know, it's increasing. It's so many. It's more. And um, the Biden is saying, stop coming. Um, these things happen. And they were happening with Obama. They're happening with Trump. They're happening yeah. still right under our noses while we, you know, we talk about these other things that are in the media, but yeah, we have this legitimate issue here at our border. What is your take on that? And is that, is that an issue that can ever be resolved? No, I wouldn't say it will never be resolved, but uh, I mean, it's a tragic issue. And the tragedy begins in Central America, which is where these kids are mostly coming from. They're not coming from Mexico, they're coming yeah. from Central America. Uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, because there are still so much poverty, so much inequality, so much repression by their governments, so much corruption by those governments. Uh, and in addition to that, you have gang violence uh, in these countries. Uh, some of the gang these gangs like MS-13 Salvador, for example, have their origins in that earlier migration in the 1960s of Central Americans who came to the US, like LA in particular, uh, fleeing uh, civil wars and repression in those countries. And as they settled, eventually some of their kids were affected by the gangs like in East LA and they developed their own gangs. And at some point, a lot of these people are deported and then they reinstitute re the gangs in El Salvador. So it's, it's a very bad situation with people and 
one doesn't necessarily blame them for wanting to migrate to here to get away from all of this violence. Yeah. But that's where the origins is. But uh, I'll remind people that the U.S. is not innocent in that situation in Central America. It's also a U.S.-made uh, situation or conditions. I mean, for years and years and years, you go back to the 1920s, you can talk about U.S. imperialism and how uh, it's U.S. imperialism was featured by American corporations, protected by the U.S. government, protected by the U.S military, the Marines, uh, to ensure that corporations who invested in Central America, especially in agricultural productions, hence the term banana republic, uh, that those uh, investments were protected. And they were protected not only by uh, occasional US military intervention, but also by ensuring that the governments of these Central American countries would in turn also protect these American corporate resources. And what did that mean? That meant dictatorships, military dictatorships, and strong, strongmen to make sure that they protected the investments. And part of those investments, of course, was the exploitation of the Central American populations in terms of their cheap labor mm -hmm. and the agricultural plantations and so forth. So the tragedy that we're still seeing in Central America is still in part stamped made in America. And um, what we saw in the 1980s, which I've recently written about in my biography of Father Luis Olivares, uh, who was the key leader of the sanctuary movement in Los Angeles when he found he had thousands of refugees coming, uh, even more so than we see right now, refugees come, eventually like uh, close to a million uh, Salvadorans settled in the US, half a million in Los Angeles alone. Uh, they were fleeing the civil wars. And unfortunately, uh, when they tried to enter the country, they faced the same kind of situation that the more recent refugees faced with the Trump administration. Then in the 1980s, you had the Reagan administration. And the Reagan administration said, oh no, no, these people are not legitimate refugees. They're coming just as, as illegal aliens to take jobs from real Americans, whatever that meant. In fact, they were legitimate political refugees. The only reason the Reagan administration did not want to label them political refugees because then they, it would undermine their political clients, which were the governments of Central, of, of, in Central America, like in El Salvador. And so uh, fortunately, a lot of good Americans came, stood up and said, no, these people are legitimate refugees and they need to be protected and this is where you had a lot of religious and faith-based movements uh, involved to provide literally sanctuary, to buy housing, feeding a lot of these refugees who came, trying to get them legal assistance so that they could argue for refugee status. And in Los Angeles, the key figure was Father Luis Olivares, a Catholic priest out of his parish, La Placita Church in downtown LA, Lady Queen of Angels. And he, uh, any sanctuary movement in the country, his was the most impressive. I mean, they housed people. They literally housed male refugees in the church itself, in the church basement, or they found them other alternative housing. They tried to find them jobs. They fed them. They clothed them. They got their kids into schools. They got them legal assistance. His operation at La Placita Church was just totally impressive. He, so there's no question about his importance in the sanctuary movement, not only in LA, but throughout the country. So I've written his story, his biography, but, but it's connected because the, the, the conditions of forcing refugees from Central America has continued so that we're seeing it continue today. Yes, there may not be civil, war, civil wars per se, the kind that we saw in the 1980s, but there is there's versions of civil wars because you have the gang warfare, you have the military and governmental repression of the gang. So you have a full version of a civil war in places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And all of that just adds to more and more violence. They, the reason they came in the 80s was to, to flee from the violence in their countries. 
And today they're fleeing the violence again. If these, if these kids stay, they're going to be forced to be members of these violent gangs. Uh, the girls will be raped uh, and so forth. And uh, so uh, clearly their families or parents want these kids out. And of course, the parents want to try to come as political refugees. But of course, under, under, under uh, the Trump administration, they were, been, they were not well treated. They were not really given their rights to ask for refugee status and said forced to stay on the Mexican side of the border under horrendous conditions. And there's a lesson there. I mean, I, I hear what people are saying that right now, these kids are coming. Uh, there's not enough facilities to, to house these kids temporarily until they're placed with a family member once a family member has been located, if there is a family member. But let's not forget what Trump did. He forced these people to stay on the Mexican side of the border under the even worse conditions, worse conditions. They had to literally sleep outdoors in shacks and tents. They were subject to violence by uh, Mexican gangs, uh, by Mexican police, uh, rapes. Uh, it was horrendous. It was a, a human rights uh, crisis that Trump created, forcing these people to stay on the Mexican side of the border. So I, I think, yes, I hear the fact that we need to be, uh, bring attention to, to the Biden administration that they have more to do, but there's no way that what they're doing in any way equates to what Trump did in terms of the uh, dehumanization of these people. Uh, at least uh, Biden is attempting to humanize the issue, but it's a logistical issue. Uh, and, and, under our rules, these kids are only to be detained for 72 hours by the, the immigration officials or border patrol. And they're detained there in, in the more uh, in the kind of you know, police type stations, right? And then at that point, they're supposed to be turned over to uh, uh, human resource development, or whatever that agency is called. But that agency doesn't have right now enough facilities they should have had those facilities, but under the Trump administration, they, they were not allowed to. That wasn't of importance to Trump. He didn't really even want them under those facilities. He wanted them to stay across the border. So that's the crisis that I think the, uh, the Biden administration is facing, where to place these people temporarily, these young kids temporarily, uh, and to make sure that they're uh, in, a, in as a hospitable situation as one can make it until they're placed with families, uh, hopefully of, of their own of their own families. So it is a problem. Uh, I don't want to downplay it. It is a problem, but I think that this administration is attempting to deal with it in, in a much more humane way than what uh, Trump and his people basically wanted. No Latinos, third world people, people from what he called shithole countries coming at all. His whole administration, much of it, remember it began with being anti-Latino and anti-immigrant when he first went when he declared for office. And it remained anti-Latino and anti-immigrant throughout those four years. So, uh, so he, his whole effort was to make sure that no Latinos came in anymore. Yeah. And uh, I don't see this, the, the, the Biden administration along anywhere near that, that position. I mean, we need to be critical, but, but we also understand that, it, that, that Trump, the Trump left was not much to work with, you know? It's true, yeah. and, and those facilities to, to temporarily house the kids weren't developed, weren't constructed. And so now, now they're moving to try to do as, as best they can. But, and of course the Republicans are trying to exploit it 
by Trump exploiting the immigrant card uh, in terms of uh, trying to uh, further racialize uh, immigrants and racialize refugees. That they're coming to get our jobs, they're coming to infect us. You know, that, that thing about infection, this has a long history. That's, that's, the, that's the origins of the uh, stereotype of the dirty Mexican, the dirty Mexican. It goes back to the 20s, the 30s, uh, and, and, and the idea that Mexican immigrants were coming in, and, and as they were coming, they, they, they were people that didn't practice hygiene, and they, they didn't concern themselves about diseases, and so they were going to come in and infect the rest of us, the rest of, of uh, other Americans, hence the concept of the dirty Mexican. I mean, it's, Trump was playing that card as well with the dirty Mexican. So, um, so you know, I don't know. Of course, I, I the, the 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 solutions, as I think Biden uh, understands, lie in Central America. Uh, we have to have policies that will support more democratic forms of governments there, uh, and and will foster economic development that won't be written with corruption, but will provide decent jobs for people. And they have to be decent jobs, not jobs that will be further exploited by American corporations or other foreign corporations. So uh, hopefully we'll develop a policy that aim more for that objective. Well, Mario Garcia, I really want to thank you for taking this time to talk. You're uh, brilliant and you have so much history to tell. And I want to thank you for your, your contributions to Chicano studies, um, history, past, present, and future. And, you know, you mentioned Salud Carbajal. There's so many people in the community, though, who have benefited from your teachings and your your books and your writings. So I want to... Uh, well, I very much appreciate that, Josh. I'm, I'm entering now my... Uh... 46 year at wow. UCSD. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've seen a lot of students. I've seen a lot of changes in the community. And, uh, and uh, but Santa Barbara has always been a good community for me and my family. UCSD has been a, a great uh, university for me as well to do my work, to do my research, to help in the development of Chicano studies. My whole goal in being in Chicano studies for all of these years has been to make it as an institution that will uh, broaden our understanding of the role of people of Mexican and Latino descent in the United States, not just in terms of some of the issues that we talked about, like institutionalized racism, but uh, the things that Chicanos and Latinos have contributed to this country, to their labor, but also the cultural contributions. And now that we have scholars of Chicano, Mexican-American background, Latino background, like myself, the um, tremendous scholarly contributions that we're making. Uh, scholarship in Chicano Latino studies has grown by leaps and bounds over the last 50 years. And uh, therefore there is no question why uh, uh, that kind of knowledge should not be also utilized in other departments on campus. But I'll finish with one last thing, if I may, Josh. Yes. We've made these major scholarly gains in terms of the production of knowledge about Chicanos and Latinos. And I see it at the university level, but my greatest disappointment has seen as it is that a lot of this knowledge that I and others have helped create has not effectively steeped down in the K to 12, in the K to 12. That is a, one of the greatest challenges we face in California and even here in Santa Barbara going forward. Why is it that with all this knowledge about Chicanos and Latinos that has not seeped down to the K to 12 in a situation here in California where most, most of those students from K to 12 are Chicanos and Latinos yeah. and are being deprived of this production of this new knowledge so that they don't know, they have no idea of how Chicanos and Latinos have made American history, have been American history. Uh, so that if they don't know that, 
they will feel just like those kids in 68 when they went out, they were protesting the lack of that kind of knowledge. They were made to feel, as Sal Castro said, they were made to feel like strangers in their own classrooms. There was nothing in their classrooms that spoke to them of their particular background and their contributions to American history. Mm. And I, and I, and unfortunately, I think, I think we're still facing that in the K to 12. I don't understand now that we have, again, more Chicano teachers, administrators, people in school boards, why that knowledge level isn't sneaking down. And in a, in a required ethnic studies class isn't gonna cut it. That's mm. not enough. Mm. All of that knowledge has to be distributed when a, a teacher is teaching about American literature, about American history, about American culture, about American civics, anything in the humanities and social sciences, that new knowledge that's being produced out of Chicano studies, Latino studies, has to be integrated so all these kids understand uh, the fullness of what society represents, which is a constellation of many, many people who have contributed to that society. But if you're only still teaching the contributions of one largely white groups of people, then and, you, and yet the majority of your students are students of color, that's just, that's a relationship that isn't gonna work and it's not working. So yes, we've produced a lot of that knowledge and that knowledge down has to be seeped down in the K to 12. And I think the, that I think is a challenge that I would make to all of our teachers, principals, administrators, members on school board, what are you doing to, to, to integrate this new knowledge about Chicanos and Latinos into your classrooms when you're faced with most of your students being Chicanos and Latinos? It's a crime if that isn't done. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank well, you, Josh, so much. I really appreciated that. All right, take care. Appreciate the it. Opportunity.